podcast. I'm always like the hype man. That's cool. Start it off with the hype. I'm the eternal hype man. I'm also loud a yeah. lot. So we're starting off strong. I mean, we haven't been back in a while. It's so, been a long time. You know. Yeah. Yeah. What was the last game we played? Um, Do you even remember Lovers? No, it wasn't Lovers. Oh my god. God, was it so long? Do we have to check our own website to see what we fucking... Oh my god. I'm sorry, and I've cursed (laughs) immediately. Um, It's not parental friendly. Yeah, so... The Witness! How could we forget The Witness? Of course, how could I forget? I I loved it. It was like Nirvana for you. For me, man, you know, started meditating. It's exactly (laughs) I guess he meditated a bit too much. Maybe. just forgot it right out of your brain. Sort of haze of (laughs) The Witness. I actually have gone back and played it a bunch more. Nice. I'm a bit farther. I cheated for the first time. No, no, I've cheated for the first time on one puzzle, and I felt immediately terrible about it and stopped. Yeah, you're just like, oof. I actually haven't played it since. I was like, I violated some sacred trust or something. But yeah, it's been a while. I'm sorry for the... It's actually, listeners, to the few of you out there, it's all on me. I'm getting married soon, so I've been a little bit uh, distracted, shall we say, from my true calling, Mm -hmm. which is being a video game (laughs) Yes, obviously marriage is a a backseat to that. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm going to have have that for the rest of my life, so whatever games are now. you got to get it over with now, and then on to gaming, a plethora of gaming (laughs) and an obsession for the rest of your life. Absolutely, man. Uh, but yeah, so today's uh, cast, we are going to be uh, talking about Undertale as mm-hmm. our our game of the hour. Um, yes. But we'll also be discussing um, the Kill Screen Festival, which we went to again this year. Uh, we're really, really lucky. Again, just to sort of caveat or to disclose, we were invited as guests of Kill Screen. I am a former business partner in Kill Screen, no longer. Uh, but I have long admired their work uh, and their writing uh, and the work of their founder, Jamin Warren. Uh, so we were very lucky to be comp tickets. So just as a sort of caveat or a disclaimer on anything we say, uh, we were there. It's for our, our journalistic integrity or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That, that we do not even need to present. I guess Because not. we're not really journalists. We're just preparing for but, like, hey, what is it, like 10 years from now when yeah. like everything is archived. I'm and, running for president. When you're running for like, president, exactly. You lied about that. And I'm like time. in court for like journalistic <laughs> integrity or something yeah. in a post-Donald Trump yeah. America. Yeah. yeah, lots happened, man. Um, People take Donald Trump's... Oh, anyway, about games. I know. About games. Happened. About games. So, and also last year, we actually didn't get to post the recording <laughs> just a note in case you were like what 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 recording what recording um yeah that never went on well, we air. addressed it in the in yes. the makeup recording we talked we talked about it yeah we had gone to kill screen festival yeah. which was formerly known as 256 yes they've changed um, their name yeah. branding shift which i think is probably a good move considering yeah. no one knows what the 256 referred to other than the hardcore pac-man heads out there yeah it was a bit too esoteric i think so but uh yeah kill screen fest which took place took place last saturday in Brooklyn is really interesting. There were a lot of really good speakers. Yeah, um, yeah, and just like that. I'm a day of like brain food. Yeah, I actually do yeah. like the format as well. It's not yeah. just a number of speeches. Um, they're each panels that are led by Jamin, the founder of Killscreen, mm-hmm. and a fantastic writer and thinker. And it's quite cool because he, you know, the format tends to just mash up uh, traditional game people yeah. with. Uh, traditional non-game people yeah like there was um i love that format a it's lot. really cool yeah like the interactions between sort of multidisciplinary approaches really really cool and then jamin moderates but he's also like a part of the conversation he's like guiding and questioning mm-hmm. people into into and out of corners so I, yeah. I liked it a lot as yeah. a format yeah um some standout moments for me were rami ishmael oh, like yeah. obviously he's a great speaker and he was talking about something that he's brought up before i've seen him talk about before which is mainly about um kind of the eurocentrism and the merocentrism of the of gaming culture mm. 
and just how much the rest of the world is left out, not only of the dialogue, but also of the, the ability to create games and have them be publicized and talked about. Um, so, you know, one thing he mentioned was how, you know, you have, he, he played a clip from Kamal Nanjiani talking about playing Call of Duty and how he was in Pakistan, but the game had uh, was having everybody speak Arabic. Ooh. And he's like, the language in Pakistan it's is not, Urdu. Yeah, exactly. It is not Arabic. It's not Arabic. They spent three years in this game, however many millions of dollars. I couldn't Google just like, what language do you speak yeah. in Pakistan. It's like, literally, they don't give a shit. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. um, so he was kind of talking about that. He had like a famous example from uh, Battlefield 3 or 4. And it was in some Middle Eastern country, obviously. Because mm-hmm. that's the setting you of so many military the towers these days. As they say. And um, there was a hotel that had Arabic underneath it that was supposed to also say hotel, but they had written it the wrong way. Like so, basically, they kind of just like translated the the, the characters phonetics, and yeah. forgot that Arabic is read right to left. Yeah. And like they broke up the letters. The letters in Arabic are supposed to um, kind of basically mesh together, like yeah. kind of like a script. But they basically took each individual character and broke it up. In this like really ugly way that any person who speaks or re- reads Arabic would just be completely offended. Basically by. destroyed the most aesthetically beautiful language on the planet Earth. Essentially, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, it's kind of like really interesting. Um, always interesting when he talks about that, that kind of stuff. But he also had a really cool um, bit about um, just like Western or uh, Middle Eastern game designers. He had a cool game that he was showing. That I let me see if I have it. It was called Farsh, Farsh, and it's a game by an Iranian uh, game designer, I believe. And it's a game; it's like a puzzle game where you're playing. You're basically controlling a rug. Oh yeah, I've heard about this game. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's really cool. The mechanic is really interesting because you're a rug that goes along this rectilinear uh, map, mm-hmm. and you can unroll. And when you unroll, you can move tiles around. So, like, the longer you unroll, the more you can move the tiles. So, you basically unwrap over the tiles and it allows you to then rotate them. And he's like, this is really interesting because it's not something that we think about when we talk about uh, game designers from other cultures. We're just like, oh, of course, you're going to just make a game with the culture. It'll right, be, like, yeah. a piece of anthropology. But, like, no, they're actually making mechanics that we couldn't have thought of because rugs aren't central to, like, American or European culture as, as they are to... To Middle Eastern culture. And what a what a what a sort of statement from a position of privilege it is that the the Western culture that so dominates the sort of uh, the majority language of this medium yeah. is then basically imposing its own autobiographical uh, instincts upon the other. Right? Yeah. It's like looking and being like, well, or you know, hey. I don't understand. I just must be. I expect everything that comes from a different yeah. culture to be about the culture. Yeah. You know, like it's that very. It's, it comes from that self. Yeah, it's like a museum. It's like, oh, this is cute. Look at this like relic. This you know thing that doesn't really matter. It's not central. It's marginalized. It's but it's, yeah, but it's kind of you're robbing yourself of, you know, the breath of human experience because you're just getting a particular perspective. When you put it that way, when you say it's like, oh, like the perspective is like, oh, it's not vital. It's so yeah. interesting because I can think about that perspective played out and really just Rami's overall perspective of the sort of privilege of the Western uh, maker in media. Yeah, it's it's beyond games at this point. I mean, it's oh, yeah. been beyond games for a long time. We talk about whitewashing in Hollywood. We even talk about uh, the Roots released uh, the album Things Fall Apart when we were both in high school. Mm-hmm. And there's this really famous uh, quote, I can't remember, I think it was from, it was Denzel from one of his movies, it was one of his Jazzhead movies, I can't remember the name or where it was from, but it was basically him talking about, and it was him in character, uh, so it was like one of the hip-hop interludes, right, like the like rap album interludes, but it's talking about how 
essentially how black art or jazz I think at the time was not treated as a art form it was treated as a commodity that mm -hmm. it was not permanent and thus not elevated to the level that I think that other artistic mediums or artistic makers mm -hmm. white in that case mm -hmm. western in our case are given the preeminence of basically being able to self-define their work as art or as permanent or as vital mm -hmm. and then the other is something lower on that pecking order sort of oh, still yeah. trying to find their way into the medium into the gatehouse into the freeze you know art <laughs> yeah. gallery sure it happens in every medium Absolutely. it's happening in games maybe yeah. a double-edged sort of you know, us being able to say that games have arrived as an artistic medium is that they are now yeah. susceptible to <laughs> the sort of oppression, the commodification, of whiteness, yeah. and Western life. Yeah, totally. Sorry, now that they're more, not absolutely, it's totally relevant. Like, just like, it's interesting. It's very, yeah. I, I like that he was there, and he was. He had, a, he had a really fun at the end of it. He kind of threw some very stealthy shade at Jamin, where he was like. You next time, you know, have a few more uh, Middle Eastern uh, programmers come. Through. Good man. Yeah. Because he was just like, you know, um, I think he was just like, these guys have a lot to say, um, yeah. and you know, bring them through. That's fair. It's um, a totally fair assessment. And I think yeah. Rami is someone who embodies so many aspects of what he preaches. I think I'm I'm, I'm pretty much <laughs> sure that Rami is also the creator of that uh, the one sheet template that he's distributed for free yeah, for a yeah. lot of other game makers, basically. Yeah. You know, the, the process of making a game is an art form. Yusuf and I talk about it always as an art form. Uh, but it is also uh, commercial art, right? It's, it's commerce and yeah. it makes people money. But you so to market often, it, you have to yeah, you know, present it. The skills that go into making a good game do not also make you a good marketer. Like mm -hmm. of all the multimedia talents that you kind of have to have to be a self-made game maker, you're talking about visual arts, you're talking about code, you're talking about interaction design, music, you know, sound. But you're not really talking about marketing. And so to level that playing field, Rami uh, basically introduced a template and a, and a simple guide to creating a uh, sales and marketing oriented one sheet for your game. And he distributes that for free online. So I think, you know, when you see a person who's talking about market share, uh, cultural market share, I like it. It's someone who sort of puts his money where his mouth is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And his games are fucking awesome, too. They're so good. Always helps. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've been playing a lot of uh, Nuclear Throne on, uh, so on the Vita. Nice. Uh, just a great, it's a great subway game because you're just like you know, it, it, because it's hard. You of don't course. play in very long chunks, so I you just do like kind of like a bunch of runs, and I tr try to make sure that my stop isn't too far away because nice. you get very like into it. You're like, oh, oh sure. you know, it's very tense. I but like, and that's yeah. my experience with Binding of Isaac. On yeah, the exactly. It's, it's very like, similar. Yeah. Oh, I'll just play this for five thirty-five minutes. <laughs> Like just one more run, just one more run. Five minutes. I got oh it this time. God. And like each, you know, like each run allows you the or like kind of presents the opportunity to potentially get like a cool gun. Or my favorite is always the melee weapons because like it's a little because aiming is a little hard with the controller. So I'll be like, I prefer having a wrench or a shovel. Nice. And you can hit bullets back with it. So oh, it becomes like this whole the defector like, man, so crazy, underappreciated. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's like makes the game so different, which is really cool. Totally. Um, but yeah, that's cool, man. Um, there, yeah, there was a, um, a couple of other, I mean, all the speakers are awesome. Just trying to kind of find some other ones that stood out. Like I know that, um, Joseph Fink and Jake Elliott yeah. were great. They were, but Joseph Fink created Welcome to Night Vale mm -hmm. and Jake Elliott was one of the creators of Kentucky oh, Route Zero. Yeah, Kentucky Route yeah. Zero. And course. that was a really cool meshing of, um, art forms because on Jamin's part, obviously that it was because they're both games that are. Or they're not both games. They're both stories about places that are apart from most where most people live. They're about kind of the wilderness. Mm -hmm. uh, Welcome to Night Vale is about like a desert town, a fictional desert town, and Kentucky Route Zero is about uh, the backcountry in Kentucky. 
and the also ca- fictionalized yeah. as well. They're right? both fictionalized, but they're both kind of created in a sort of uh, as an homage to those places, like as a love letter to those places. Mm. Josephine had a cool story about how he was living in LA for a long time and he never did, did the drive to uh, Las to Las Vegas. And he assumed that it was going to be like a boring, just desert road. But when we went through it, it was actually super beautiful. Wow. And just like really, like, um, he was just like, the desert is like this kind of place that's m- magical and beautiful. And it's it's undersold in a lot of respects. Um, and it can be, you know, as beautiful as a forest. Hmm. Like it has so many interesting elements to it. Totally. Um, and brings to mind the work of, uh, yeah. I can't remember the writer, but my fiance was, one of her favorite books of all time is this book called Desert Solitaire, which is all about this mm. park ranger who goes and sets up in Yosemite, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it's just this like half poetry, half prose of just the beauty of the desert. Mm. I'm actually reading, uh, rereading for like the fourth or fifth time Blood Meridian right now, so my head is from oh, yeah, the, sure. the desert. Yeah, I should send you this, uh, I just read this really cool tiny article by, I think, Rebecca... All right, I forgot her last name, but we'll source it in the um, yeah. But she was kind of this. uh, She's a writer, but she's talking about spending a bunch of uh, seasons or a bunch of like trips in the Moab desert and talking about how interesting it was because the the act of 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 transplanting herself from New York City, which is where she normally lives, to a desert and kind of inhabiting the the inhabiting the skin of a of a regular of a local mm. in a way that you while you don't necessarily earn it from having been born there you can it does like embrace you to the point it's just like the, the act of like of playing local the act of yes. becoming familiar with like a totally alien place of course um, and I think that even that, that sort of transit even works in reverse right like yeah. as, a, as a New Yorker oh, you've sure. heard a million times the transplant who comes in he's like well am I a New Yorker now yeah, am yeah, I a New Yorker yeah, now yeah, like yeah. have you complained about the bridge and tunnel crowd <laughs> yes. have you been stuck on a subway for more than 20 minutes <laughs> you are a New Yorker yeah. <laughs> yeah do you suffer like I suffer yeah, it's cool to think of play, of of that act of um, kind of wearing a wearing a new mantle that moving between places affords you, and it's, and it's not you know not every place can do that, but it's interesting how both New York and the desert can do that, and and basically the medium that we so love can do that. I mean, we every oh, yeah. time we step into a game, we step into an avatar, we step into a skin, or loosely veiled as such, right? Like even the silent protagonist or the first person genre still has hands, still has weapons, still has a way of interfacing with this world you're plopped into. Yeah, and the more time you spend in it, the more you uh, become familiar with it. And, you know, especially like games you play over and over again. Yeah. Like you, you know, you feel like it belongs to you. True. Um, which is something that, yeah, it's, it's specific to games and, you know, different localities, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like you familiarity that comes from just uh from spending time there even if it's not your life it's a you know it's important because it's a a segment of your life i think there is also a sort of extremity or a liminality to both the desert environment and the new york city style environment right like they both contain these kind of inhospitable reputations right the desert will kill you new Mm -hmm. york will kill you (laughs) like (laughs) we'll strip you we'll strip you poor and rob you of your rights and throw you in the gutter and ain't it the greatest place on earth right like there's these extremities to these places i think that allow them that sort of a basic like poetry of like of belonging like you want to belong even though it's like the hardest place like new york is a very difficult place right like oh sure it's It's, new york city is killing me famously it's death by exposure from totally different elements elements. (laughs) the sun and people people and economy yeah 
the other cool thing that um, uh, the two creators were talking about were uh, conspiracy theories. I guess mm. Damon is really kind of asking about that point um, and because they both revolve around that. And they have a, like, at least Joseph Fink had a really interesting thing to say about it, which was that um, conspiracy theories resemble religion in the way that it's humanity trying to make sense of something that's unexplainable Absolutely. to them at that moment. Absolutely. And it's, like, interesting because the quote was, like, it's less terrifying to think of an evil force that's trying to get you than one that isn't. Mm. Because it's like, all right, I know that, you know, know your enemy kind of thing. Absolutely. So that's, like, really like cool. Yeah. The pale, indecipherable, like, terror of true chance. Yeah. Of, like, yeah. there is no purpose. There's no purpose. The there, universe yeah. is beyond my control. It's so funny because that really brings to mind, um, specifically, I was going to bring up this quote um, from Cormac McCarthy from mm. uh, Blood Meridian. Uh, for talking about Undertale later mm-hmm. in the cast, but it actually fits in quite perfectly with what you're with what you're talking about now with this idea of like meaning. There's this beautiful quote. Um, where is it? Here we go. Uh, so this is from uh, this is from Blood Meridian okay. by Cormac McCarthy. The truth about the world, he said, and he is the judge, who's mm-hmm. this like he's basically Ahab and Moby Dick rolled up into one. Okay. The truth about the world is that anything is possible. Had you not seen it all from birth and thereby bled it of its strangeness, it would appear to you for what it is, a hat trick in a medicine show, a fevered dream, a trance bepopulate with chimeras, having neither analog nor precedent, an itinerant carnival, a migratory tent show whose ultimate destination after many a pitch in many a mudded field is unspeakable and calamitous beyond reckoning. For existence has its own order, and that no man's mind can compass, that mind itself being but a fact among others. Like, your perspective is nothing. Like, it's just one mm-hmm. among many quote-unquote mm-hmm. facts. Like, there's nothing that you can do to touch it, to contain it. It's like yeah. the central theme of that kind of Faustian bar. Oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's wonderful. Actually, yeah, um, I don't know if you read the the Southern Reach trilogy, like Annihilation. No, but you were telling me about that during the Kill Screen Fest. I definitely need to read it. Yeah, I think um, Joe Ross, who's yep. one of the speakers, had brought it up. Yep. And yeah, it's just like an awesome mystery book about all about how um, mankind's... Just, limited ability to conceive of things that are beyond them yeah you know the the interaction with with aliens is the idea that you know aliens are just like way more than we can understand as it would make sense because it's like we can only understand what exists within our reality mm-hmm. so when you when you perhaps come in contact with an alien it's gonna just be impossible to to fully like wrap your mind around Even it, comprehend what's happening yeah, in the moment. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we have these yeah, really dull yeah. tools of perception mm-hmm. that we're we're limited by. Yeah. We're strapped to it. You yeah. Know? No, it's really fascinating. And it forms our reality. Yeah. Yeah. So they're both kind of uh, they're both talking a lot about mysteries, and so was uh, who I met brought up Joe Russ, who is a good dude, good friend of mine. Yeah, it was um, so great, man. His work looks incredible. It's fantastic. Incredible. Yeah. I'm excited to play. Jenny Little Clue is the game that he's working on. Major plug, guys. This looks really, really good. Check it out <laughs> yeah, if you haven't heard of it. Definitely check out Jenny They Little had a big Clue. success on Kickstarter, right? Absolutely. Yeah, they were Jenny good. They're, they got a good Steam steam run. Uh, they're steam filled into their tanks. And nice. They're going, they're going forward with it. And he seemed like a genuinely great dude. That's yeah. the other thing. Always okay. good that a good guy succeeds, you know? <laughs> exactly. Not a dick. <laughs> 
And then he was on stage with uh, Zepha Kinney, who oh, so is this woman who's writing uh, Nancy Drew fiction modern currently. Like they, I guess they have a comic series. So yeah, they have a graphic novel series. So yeah, she's she the first credited author uh, oh, on the Nancy, Nancy Drew, Drew series since the original writer, which is which is achievement. fucking awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just so awesome. Yeah. But yeah, both stories are obviously about mysteries. Um, yeah, and, and female uh, detectives, yeah. right? Like this whole subgenre of the like sort of spunky woman detective or girl detective. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's and this is interesting too. Because it also ties into our future Undertale talk where, because they both spoke about how interesting it is to have a character that's powered by will and motivation rather than superpowers. Yeah, and that their like, internal you know, engine is powered. Yeah, by will it's and like motivation. you know they're um, you know they're incorrigible. They're not incorrigible. Yeah, it's fine. Incorrigible is fine. Incorrigible. Yeah, absolutely. They won't give up. Yeah. Like, they won't uh, drop the case. No. No matter what the hardship against them. And that's like, that in itself is a superpower. Like, where most people would just be like, all right, this is not, I'm not going to that haunted house. Are you kidding me? Right. They're just like, I'm doing it. And that is, uh, makes them kind of a, a more compelling character in many ways than one that just is just super supernaturally gifted. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like a contextual power, too, because when you yeah. think about it, it's like a response to sort of post like original post Betty Friedan feminism where it's like no women can be educated women yeah. are not lazy they are determined free thinking agents that can like solve a crime mm-hmm. or put themselves into a dangerous situation and make it through by wit and by you know intellect alone mm-hmm. so in a weird way it's like this like post first or second wave feminism like trope and the superpower is like ability <laughs> the superpower is like being a thinking agent with yeah, lots of will and determination. I mean, it is one, but... It, it is. is. No, I mean, it yeah. really is, actually. And we'll yeah. touch on that back when we get to Undertale. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah. I mean, should I go on, or do you think... Uh, I think, personally, like, my favorite I'll go for panel uh, was the Kitty Horror Show panel. And it was the yeah. first one of the day. Yeah, tell me about that, because I missed part of yeah. that. Yeah. It was Kitty Horror Show, plus it was the... Um, Felix Barrett. Yeah, exactly. Sleep No More. And he was like the founder or whatever, the original director of Sleep No More, which mm-hmm. is this interactive, well, semi-interactive theater piece. It's interactive for some visitors. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. It's happening in New York. It's, happen- it's sort of traveled uh, loosely to some other major cities, but it's a two or three hour um, rendition of uh, Macbeth, I believe? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the yeah, Scottish show. Yeah. Macbeth. Um, and it's very loosely based on Macbeth, but what it is is it's this like crazy theater experience that plays out in three-hour loops. The players are always on track. Like all these actors are running around a three or four-story warehouse space uh, in the Lower West Side of Manhattan, and it's really special. I went I went to the show like three years ago, mm-hmm. um, and it's amazing because in a lot of ways I think it's like the best VR experience you could ever have. It's yeah. very look but don't touch. Um, yeah. You are free to walk around this space while the play is happening all around you in various parts distributed throughout those floors. So, you know, there are the witches in a secret attic space and very, very spooky. Macbeth is running around all over the space, you know, uh, killing, raping, loving, being visited <laughs> by ghosts, all these different things. All of the All of the sort of analogs of the play are happening. But you as the audience are not sitting vapid in a seat, you know, A24 or C38, mm-hmm. and watching this sort of two-dimensional stage play, you're moving around it. You're free to wander, you're free to open things, you're free to touch objects, you're free to, like, open doors, try doors that are locked. Uh, the thing you cannot do is touch the actors unless they lead you to places. And there are secrets, there are Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. 
if you... It's very dense. It is. It's very dense. There's, in fact, entire Wikipedias committed to trying to sort of unearth the secret. Much like a video game. Like yeah. Wikipedias of, like, how to well, 100%. Yeah, yeah, how to, like, 100% yeah. sleep no more. And it's funny because that came up by the creator. And it was yeah. really funny to hear about a person who was putting on semi, semi-interactive theater piece, essentially talking about game and interaction design. Mm-hmm. He was the first person throughout the entire day of the Kill Screen uh, Festival that brought up the concept of loops. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about loops in terms of the, the, the stage play, the action that the actors take works on a loop. The actor comes out of their hiding place in one of the back rooms that are accessible, plays out a scene, goes to another room, plays out a scene, goes back to the beginning of a loop, plays it out again. And this is, of course, for consumption, right? For sort of so every paying and high paying audience member can go in and have a chance of seeing the experience mm-hmm. but there's also interaction loops there's yeah. stuff like if you go to a specific actor in a specific place in a specific time that actor may give you a key that is hanging around their neck and there's like 12 or 13 keys in total and lead you to an exclusive experience that no other members of the audience will have during mm-hmm. that performance It'll loop a few times in the evening, sure. but this has bred the same kind of behavior of cataloging and 100%ing that yeah. you and I know in, and the audience knows as the sort of like game fact or like the, the walkthrough competition, which yeah. Kill Screen has yeah. actually covered really, really well, the culture of walkthroughs yeah. um, and like being the first to post a walkthrough after a game's release, whatever. And the community that builds up around a game's secrets. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah which will, of course, come back again when we talk about Undertale. Yeah. Uh, but it was really interesting because here was a theater uh, director talking about essentially an interaction loop mm-hmm. and he was sitting on stage with one of my favorite sort of thinkers or talkers or makers or doers of the of the event which is Kitty Horror Show uh, and Kitty Horror Show uh, basically deals in short to medium form horror games uh, that she makes herself and she's this like really I mean especially when on stage there was this potency to the way that she spoke about her craft and it was really deliberate and very well thought out and she sat somewhere between a uh, sort of needling director like mm-hmm. a theater director yeah. and kind of the loose form that you'd expect from like an expressionist painter mm-hmm. they were the, the subject of their talk was horror yeah. right and sleep no more has lots of horrifying elements especially because you're up and out of your seat right yeah. like it's horrifying to be called an audience and expected yeah. to do things yeah. like that's horrifying on a base level and there's also just like scary things that happen everyone's wearing like you know eyes wide shut style masks yeah. walking around with like phallic noses beaks or whatever i mean there's um, cemeteries there's oh yeah asylums have you seen the show oh, yeah, 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 there. yeah. yeah it's, it was cool it was really cool yeah um so it was great to hear them speaking because there was so much symmetry and i think again games as an art form these mediums are moving closer and closer together i feel um, like they've always had those common roots you know because so it is too. about audience inter audience design experience design yeah uh, ways to guide the audience you know there's a lot of parallels like for example you know i, I know a few people who've like completely bounced off of sleep no more where they actually had to be escorted out oh they like, just couldn't they were like they, they couldn't were like, handle Fuck this yeah I'm break this yeah or like they're i remember i think uh yeah a friend of mine went on a date like i think it was a first date went terribly that's rough so yeah <laughs> like the the woman he was dating i guess like started yelling at the staff and she had to be escorted out yeah yeah it was like such a visceral reaction to lose control um which is something that i think um you know you see a little bit in games where people oh my gosh yes um, People might have trouble uh, with the game systems and bounce off of it because they 
or frustrated. You Absolutely. know, it's a natural like something that you, you, you sometimes want to avoid. Sometimes you are okay with like having a little bit of that happening in your game, making it a little bit more inscrutable. And Sleeping War certainly is incredibly inscrutable. It's not, it's not a comfortable experience when you first start it off. No, no, not at all. Yeah. You're scared. You're kind of thrust into yeah. it. Sometimes you're even separated from the person that you came into the theater yeah. with. Yeah. They'll put you on a different elevator yeah. and take you to a different floor to start the... the so it's yeah, totally experience. understandable that it would um, you would get some bounce off as a result of that. But interestingly enough, I think in a, in a sort of isolated experience mm-hmm. that playing a game can be especially playing like a horror game or mm-hmm. actually just playing any sort of like single player oriented game and even in multiplayer games there's this culture of in multiplayer games griefers mm-hmm. right people who like oh, sure. just want to ruin the experience for yeah. everybody else yeah. and derive fun from that yeah. and the idea of the people who just want to break the game system yeah. and this is something that you actually kind of have to design for everybody who's playing your yeah. game is going to like, someone who is playing your game is going to go to every wall and push on it is going mm-hmm. to go to every yeah. place you tell them not to go and see if they can get around it. Mm-hmm. And that's just a given. It might be a human condition. Well, it's like that. there was that, it's that famous, uh, basically, categorization of gamers, right? The, I think it was made during a, uh, uh, on, or like a text adventure, a MUD uh, forum, where they basically, somebody wrote a whole layout, uh, or a whole dictionary for how, how gamers tend to react. There's the explorer, there's... Yep. The one who looks for the challenge, there's uh, or who wants to best the game. There's also the one who, yeah, who wants to kind of push the boundaries of the game to see to break the system to find out, you know, like how much they can they can push the envelope until the game actually just stops being uh, immersive and loses its verisimilitude for the player. The completionist that must see or touch or have mm-hmm. everything yeah. possible, and those are like the Bethesda wannabes, the guys who get lost sure. for four years in Fallout, or like <laughs> five years in Skyrim. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Or like, the, or I mean, you have the Ubisoft game where it just kind of feeds the completionist. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, cover the whole map and... I'm at 24%, touch, dude, I've been playing yeah. this for 100 hours! It's okay, Spend it on a couple of hundred. You and I, you need to get all the feathers and then it's so the true. Video. Far Cry Four is doing that to me, where I'm just like, I yeah. don't even like this game that much. I actually really don't even like this game that yeah. much. Yeah. But I'm like, I can just get one more like Mohangali like journal uh-huh. because I get four more for the reward, which yeah. I'm never told what the reward is. The reward is collecting the journal, obviously. The, the, the reward is a very distant carrot. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what distance. am I doing here? Yeah, but it, it yeah. Um, yeah, that was Kill Screen Fest. Yeah, Kill Screen Fest. I would again, you know, for people in the New York, in or around the New York area, I definitely recommend if you like intelligent and funny and fun, and sometimes bracing conversations about not just games but associated medias and non-associated medias. Please do yourself a favor and check out the Kill Screen Festival. Indeed, in Duba Duble. Mm-hmm. All right, so I guess we can move on to our game of the hour. Mm-hmm. That is Undertale by Toby Fox, I believe. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One person made this entire game. One, <laughs> one person yes. crafted the tale of Under. Mm-hmm. And uh, Undertale, it is the story of a non-gender specific hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think gender is ever No, it's, it's purposely left out. Yeah. Um, and that person is like falls into a caldera or something, or like mm-hmm. goes off into the woods, goes off into a space, and yeah. falls into the world of monsters, which was sealed long ago. Uh, and the monsters are in this underworld setting where they have been persecuted by humans and locked into this underworld setting. Yeah. And you are the 
seemingly the first human to fall down there in a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is a game that has uh, it's very it's very clever off the bat because it uh, it basically kind of uh, satirizes and twists and subverts RPG tropes to kind of make it a more interesting interaction. So, and in, you have your standard enemies and your standard. UI for dealing with enemies in an RPG, like a turn-based. Yeah, like a turn-based. Yeah, um, yeah, role-playing game of the, of the Japanese variety, mm-hmm. and you can choose to spare enemies in this game. And this is not something that's immediately like presented to you as an obvious choice, but as you, if you read up on it, or you know, just from experience playing the game, you realize that a lot of the um, characters in the game and the narrative of the game is urging you not to kill these monsters Mm -hmm. to have sympathy for the monsters of this underworld that you that your character has been thrown into Mm -hmm. so that's the kind of a big aspect of the game is uh the choice of whether or not to you know to kill or spare the monsters that you come across because they're attacking you out of defense that they've either been told that you're bad from you know their higher ups or they're just um knee jerk you know kind of attacking anything that comes across their path right but you, as you know, the player can choose to to kill or spare. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting too because you said it's not immediately apparent. It certainly is not. <laughs> uh, but I found it to be immediately apparent. Oh really? And I, I kind of put myself on a media blackout when we identified yeah. that this would be our game of the hour. Okay. So I, I did a pretty good job of not reading about it or not looking at it. Yeah. But I played a series of games called Persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you hadn't, uh, it's, I have yeah, it's it's a but I've heard of them, yeah. JRPG, like a Japanese RPG that very much is in the vein of what Undertale, I think, is satirizing or coming from. Yeah, and I think in in Persona's case, it's a little bit less satire, a little bit more homage or love letter to, mm-hmm. because in the um, Persona series, you quite similarly are a high school student, or not not that's not the similar part, but you're a high school student. You go through a day and night cycle of going to classes during the day and then fighting monsters in this like weird parallel world at night. But even though in Persona's case you are given, you're put into a turn-based RPG setting, you are given a list of essentially talking commands. Mm-hmm. Where instead of fighting, if you so choose, you can choose to talk to these monsters, tell them jokes, insult them, praise them, whatever. Mm-hmm. And certain classes and species of monster will respond positively or negatively to certain types of interaction. And in some cases, if you're really silver-tongued, they'll actually join your ranks, and you can use those monsters to fight other monsters. I think there's the critical difference between Persona and Undertale. In Undertale, you simply end the battle in in a sparing gesture or in a runaway gesture, but in the Persona game, there was also this sort of like Pokemon-esque, like, you know, converse them all, get them all on your team. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it was this interesting experience of going But there's in. a lot of roots there. Yeah. Yeah, there's some roots there. And I, I, I think having played that game plus my implicit, my own personal uh, implicit desire to not kill anything if possible mm-hmm. kind of motivated a very weird playthrough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but... How do I describe that? I mean... It, it was, for, for example, like... So in the game, you uh, first of all, it was really weird because when I started the game up, I thought the entire thing was going to be an allegory on birth and life because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, like I'm a little kid, I've fallen into like an empty, linear, pink tinged tunnel. Maybe this is the birthing canal. Oh, there's like a mother figure here who's like really, really taking care of me. She's 
holding my hand through an initial puzzle sequence, literally holding my hand through an initial puzzle sequence so I don't get hurt, she initiates and then cancels the first battle that you go through in a game by like handily routing the enemy when you can't seem to handle it yourself. Essentially the tutorial section of the game. Mm-hmm. And that allegory became weaker and weaker as the game went on, so I don't think that was a guiding principle. Mm-hmm. But at first I was like, oh, it's a game about like life. Yeah. And then you reach this point where you're trying to leave the house of this woman who's your, this monster woman who's like basically deigning to take care of you and be your mother. You want to leave, and this is where like the real game begins, but she won't let you because the dangers of the outside world are too much. And so I think um, a lot, I, I basically, I had this experience where I fought her, right? The game forces you into a fight with her. I think this is probably the first big morality choice that the game will likely present a player with. Mm-hmm. And I did something really weird, which is I, I let myself get attacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, the game mechanically plays out with the battle system that you were talking about, which is a uh, JRPG-style turn-based battle system, but kind of like the Paper Mario and the Super, Super Mario Brothers RPG games, mm-hmm. when enemies attack you, you go into actually a shmup-type gameplay, where a yep. bullet-hell gameplay, where you're in a little box, you control a heart as your avatar, and these, like enemy fire basically comes at you and you have to avoid it so very early on in the game I was given kind of two major clues that I can potentially get out of this situation without hurting or killing Toriel the mother figure Mm -hmm. the first clue being that I was put into a mechanical shmup situation Mm -hmm. without a fire button Mm -hmm. and what do you do in shmups when you can't fire you avoid fire right so defense is the best offense in the mechanical sense but also, the weird part was I allowed Toriel to hit me yeah. and hit me and hit me mm-hmm. and hit me. Something very telling happens in that first battle if you let your hit points get drained. When your hit points reach about two or one, the fire, the like elements that could hurt you in that shmup environment, move away from you. You're not allowed to be killed in that first battle. Yeah. And so in that first battle, I basically kept on spamming plead or like whatever the command was to like yeah. let me go or like spare me or whatever. Um, and eventually, on like twentieth or thirtieth try, uh, dialogue dialogue reactions from Toriel would change, and I was able to get out of that fight yeah. without killing her. Okay, interesting. So it was just an interesting experience. I think it was you know fueled by my like having played games that may have may or may not have been like inspirational touchstones for this game, but also because of that very telling mechanic, the game would not allow me to die. And death, yeah, is, no, death I, is a very principal part of playing a game. Well, right? I mean, I, I also like. Recognize that that happened during the fight, like when because she's hard, so mm-hmm. she gets you down to low health pretty quickly. But I interpreted it more as she doesn't want to hurt me, which is already it. obviously the case. Yes. But then the game was like, "But do you want to play the game or not? Like, you know, do you want to proceed or not?" It does kind ask kind of you like that. Yes. basically the question is like, you know, do you have to break a few eggs to have an adventure? <laughs> and that's kind of like how I saw it. So I, I did kill her. You killed her, yeah. Yeah, and that was the only character I did kill. But nice. um, I didn't realize that there was an option around it, which was totally fine yeah, because it was like a valid ending. Um, the game basically has a few different endings. Um, one, if you kill any character, you get a neutral neutral ending. If you get if you don't kill any character, you get a good ending. And if you kill, I guess, every single character in the yes, game, the genocide run, as it's been yeah, called, which is awful. But it also um, takes a lot of work. Apparently, I've never a lot of work. I've never done the genocide run. I don't have any intention to do so. Yeah, exactly. I'm fine reading about it, but <laughs> you have to kill every single enemy. Like you have every encounter that happens. Like it's a clear stage 
of enemies so that there's no more encounters can happen, which is just like beyond tedious. Yeah. Essentially. Um, but yeah, you get these three endings and they kind of shed more light in the story of the game. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, so describe, I'm interested to hear more about like your, your weirdness in like, you know, and dealing with the game and dealing with those systems. Yeah, I I gotta say, like, it was not very fun for me. Mm-hmm. The experience of playing the game was not very fun for me. It's definitely a game that I would not have completed were it not for the podcast. This is very much in the vein of the Talos Principle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it really had to do with um, my own sort of reaction to the systems of the game. And it, the writing was good. Here's the thing. I, I'm actually not bashing the game. Like, it, the writing was really good. It showed a lot of care and the systems that were interlocking, the choices that were made in design were all very interesting choices. So you gotta give credit where credit is due. The game remembers everything that you ever do and mm-hmm. even goes so far as even to in lock, new games. <laughs> yes, to lock those choices into a permanent yeah. directory. Mm-hmm. Not even a save file that's so easily tampered with, but the directory of the game. You'd essentially need to like really do a manual hack of the game system to erase your permanent progress um so interesting was like I, I bought the game many 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 months before we decided to make it our game of the hour and i played it for a few hours uh, i barely got out of the house and i was just like this is boring mm-hmm. and like <laughs> the writing is i get it like i'm look yusuf you know me i'm a walking dad joke like i made a dad joke before we started recording this thing mm-hmm. um but i did not connect with the writing um, as much as I thought I would. Uh, and I still respected it because it was making a lot of really gutsy and confident choices in its voice. So I've got to give it love. But I played it many, many months ago and I got bored and I stopped. And then I suggested that we play it as our game of the hour. Um, Maybe to to influence you to finish it. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, like get my, drain yeah. my capital value out of that like $8 purchase or whatever it was. Uh-huh. Um, and then what I did was I did what I think any person would do for many 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 months removed from a game they barely played i started a new game sure and i immediately noticed clue number three sorry i forgot to say this my clue number three that something weird was afoot in this game was that people started characters very early on in the game sort of talking to me as if they knew me or i should know them Mm. alluding to some sort of you know past visit that i may have taken in the game Mm -hmm. and i hadn't i mean i had many many months removed but that's when i was like ah okay the game's tracking me the game knows I've been away. The game mm-hmm. knows I've been here before. Mm-hmm. And that flowy flower character. Yeah. And even Toriel was like, you don't recognize me? So I was That's like, okay, there's like some things happening here. So recognize you started the game, quit, and started a new game. It's Yeah, it's that it was more than my first playthrough, yeah. essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I noticed that. And I I got it, and I liked it. And it's funny because like, it's almost like the... Uh, one way of looking at Undertale is that it's like the ultimate realization of like analytics technology like what if everything you ever did was recorded somewhere by some infinite recording angel of history and like yeah what if you know like yeah we have this output where essentially you could go if you if you and I've read about this but I haven't done it if you go on the genocide run it permanently brands you as a genocidal maniac mm-hmm. and even if you would wanted to do a pacifist run after the genocide run it would not allow it you would get that genocidal tinged ending of someone who's destroyed this world Mm -hmm. so with that in mind the game to me took on two kind of meanings i felt like it was an exploration of meaning like the meaning of life or the meaning of of 
motivation or what you're doing on on this playthrough and also this kind of like this exploration of morality you know very baldly it's it's telling you or asking you why you're doing the things you do and it's reacting to your moral choice and your moral choice in this game is kill or don't kill mm -hmm. um, but it seems like those are the two prevailing thematics for me meaning like what is your meaning why are you here why are you doing this why are you playing this why are you in underworld and morality it's an exploration of meaning and morality the choices that you make yeah you know as a player yeah yeah I, I, I definitely agree with that interestingly enough it like kind of <laughs> the piece of popular culture that it most reminded me of and that most brought out I think a bit of my frustrations in the act of playing the game was Groundhog Day <laughs> mm. the Bill Murray movie sure because I, I think about Groundhog Day while I was playing it and I was like well, what is it that made Groundhog Day so much fun fun like a capital F fun mm -hmm. to watch and what is it that made the experience Undertale so unrewarding just for me just for my one <clears throat> experience and it boiled down to a single word which was editing you know mm -hmm. Groundhog Day there was some fan site sure. that calculated it. Groundhog Day uh, was set to one fan site thinks it was something that was uh, three years uh, eight years eight months and 16 days mm -hmm. that Bill Murray's character was trapped in the loop and another site says that it was 34 years because they calculated the time that it would take for him to master piano ice sculpture and all the random mm. things that happen in the montage <laughs> yeah but those things happen in a montage yeah and if i were an audience member yeah. that was subjected to that experience in real time mm -hmm. i would probably want to commit suicide just like bill murray did as the fan side says around the second year yeah. when you're like what is the meaning of life mm -hmm. if i can't move forward right mm -hmm. and so me as a player of undertale i was curious about what the hype was all about but I was unwilling and non-determined enough mm -hmm. to commit eight hours on each round of the fiction without any editorial capacity. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to derive the full meaning and the full experience of the game, I would need to commit an unreasonable amount of time to repeating an experience over and over again for minute changes in dialogue strings or for mechanical changes in the way the fight plays yeah. out. I mean, I wonder if that is a reflection more on our age as gamers, like adults in their 30s, yes. wanting this experience that's kind of neat, short, directed, that will get to the point quickly. Yeah. And Undertale seems like to be a game really designed for people in their early 20s and like... Uh, and younger, maybe. And even younger. Yeah. Uh, just I think who, it's written younger. Who have, this, like, who have this piece of media that they can actually obsess over and that they can um, really like own... By, by the nature of them just spending so much time with it. Yeah. Because it rewards you so much for spending many rounds of the game with it, like as you, as you mentioned before. So it could be, yeah, it, a lot of it I think is like us wanting this, a story delivered more in the way that a movie would deliver it. While, um, yeah, it's not going to do yeah. that because it's a game. Because it's specifically a game and can only be a game. Exactly. And these <laughs> you know. themes that I'm talking about actually came out a lot more clearly after I read your excellent piece on comparing oh, Undertale. No, I, I have to plug when I, <laughs> when I respect Kling. Yeah, we're drinking wine. Sorry, <laughs> folks. Um, but I have to say, like, it really actually snapped the pieces of the puzzle together for me because even when you were writing it, and I want you to unpack this a little bit more for me, sure. it seems like there's a really big difference between Dark Souls and Undertale. Um, yes, the themes of determinism, like the, the de sorry, determination, the determination of the player is the engine that drives this experience, right? 
both Dark Souls and a game like Undertale. But you even said it in your uh, in your excellent piece, which was like, there's this kind of difference when I come back to Dark Souls. You know, you have that same boss in that same ready position, in that same exact pixel-perfect distance from the door that we're going to have those few steps into towards each other before the music swells up. Mm-hmm. It's very, very architected, very specific. And the reward that you pulled away from it, according to your writing, was that moment of besting the challenge, mm-hmm. of, of like finally felling the foul beast. Mm-hmm. But I think the reward in Undertale is, to Toby Fox's credit, a lot more subtle, mm-hmm. but it's a string change. It's a bit of dialogue that changes in this one play experience versus the last eight-hour slog that you had to go mm-hmm. through. And so for me, I think, and this is where you, your writing, really helped me recognize that, you know, I'm a, maybe I'm just a more kinetic game player. Mm-hmm. Maybe the sense of reward, the thing that fuels my engine of determination, uh, comes from the moment and not from the minutia of difference in, in, in the overall experience of expending all of these hours for like that one, like the completionist journey yeah. of seeing what are all the things that Toriel could tell me in these eight hours. Like, I don't fucking care. I mean, Tommy, Tommy doesn't care about yeah, that yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't care. It's clever writing, but, like, that's not enough for me. Yeah. How do I feel when I sidestep in the right keyframed moment of the animation, parry and fucking stab the dude in the back, and after six hours <laughs> of fighting this over-leveled boss, finally destroy it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I mean, that's what's interesting is because you brought it up yourself earlier on yeah. when you were talking about um, dealing with Toriel, who's the mother character early on the game. Mm-hmm you are you know running up against her over and over again because yeah. you don't want to take the easy way out which is just kill her and so in fact like, i walked away from her multiple times sure to you're like to maybe something else can happen yeah so in, in that i feel like there is just like this deep um parallel there between the two games because yeah it's but, you, but i think you're right what you're saying is there is the reward is very different like with dark souls is purely besting you know like it's yeah. purely about um, just overcoming something that previously seemed insurmountable. With Undertale, you still have it. Still demands that you uh, you kind of attack it, even in a pacifistic way. You're still trying to overcome its challenges, True. and you're doing it over and over again. Even if you're just pleading over and over again, <laughs> even if you're just dying over and over again. It's still a mechanic <laughs> that you're required. It's so true. To, a gauntlet that you're required to overcome, and then once you do, the question is what the what is the reward? The the reward in many cases it's really just like the game kind of being like, okay, you're a good person. Yeah, it's <laughs> or, true. You know, okay, you're fine. It, and if we're gonna if we're to take games, I think we both respect the medium enough. If we're to take games as some strange reflection of ourselves you know mm-hmm. as when, what happens when we don the avatar and go into this space where it's safe to just actually be ourselves mm-hmm. and not have to pretend and be our public human persona because we do we always have a mask right we're wearing various shades of mask but when we go in there maybe it says something really remarkable about the difference of our character that again many episodes ago we talked about how i've played many but have never beaten any of the souls games mm-hmm. any and mm-hmm. you yusef you destroy <laughs> them well let's you destroy is you yeah, sure it's subjective, subjective but you do you complete them which yes. to me is an expression of incredible commitment mm-hmm. and acumen and determination mm-hmm. that i simply put do not have in my soul of souls in my car in me 
in Tavit. I don't have that, nor am I fueled by that desire. And so it's this really interesting thing because, like, on the mechanical level, you know, it's this, it's this sort of like, uh, I don't know. I think there's like these two sides, right? It's this very Groundhog Day, uh, shmup meets turn-based. It's all about the new game plus. It's all about the minutia of differences, and it's really impressive. Actually, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. really impressive as a system goes. Absolutely. If you're into it, but on this poetical level which I think the game also functions in, um, it seems, like I said, the search for meaning, the stakes of morality. And I think that in some ways, that poetical level was lost on me subjectively mm. because I think that you, for me, you disempower the stakes of morality when you're allowed to start again and mm. when the scene resets itself and presents itself to you again for your next choice and i think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting way to explore morality yeah. and determination and determinism yeah but and it is in a jar it's very interesting um but in a in a on a keyboard yeah with a screen sitting there in a medium that is you know that is for me evoking memories of persona of earthbound mm-hmm. of a lot of other references that i love um it just it felt like too much work to extract mm. its best value its yeah. best value which I mean segues nicely into Michael Lutz's um, essay yes which I absolutely had, had you read before mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. podcast because um, I think it's a really cool um, and very like insightful reading of the of the game and how it was trying to deliver a story because the game is delivering a very complex story you know I think it's really aiming for Something like Dark Souls, where the story is very deeply embedded in... Almost um, beyond the you know, playable. It is literally beyond the first playthrough. You know? Yes, you like, cannot access it for the first playthrough. So, I mean, what he was talking about in his paper was basically just talking about how... Um, essentially, you you had to... The game presents one face of the story for the first two playthroughs. In the neutral playthrough, which is what it assumed most new players will go through as they'll accidentally kill one or two monsters yeah, kill some not all um which is the fa- which is like the this character flowey comes at you at the end of the game and uh, reveals itself to be kind of this like you know evil monster that's more than uh, it appears to be like kind of this basically monster that's already collected souls of the other humans that have come through and is trying to collect yours and um to open the gates to the yeah humans. and is trying to you know basically it's the pen, the ultimate villain of the game, yeah. um, and in the neutral playthrough, it's completely different. Like you, um, I think it's still the fight maybe Flowey at some point. But yeah, you, I think you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you then fight other characters in the game that are that you wouldn't have dealt with in the neutral playthrough, and ultimately you you lead the monsters to the human world and help integrate them into the human world or attempt to, and it's like kind of the pure good ending. Like you're you're trying you're you are not seeing the monsters as monsters. They're just another um, species. Like mm-hmm. you're 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 bridging the gap between what previously seemed unbridgeable. But in the third playthrough, which is Toby Fox actually doesn't like the genocide thing. Of course not. Yeah, it's funny. I think a play, I think a let's player said it and then like kind of stuck. <laughs> but yeah, I guess people call it no mercy as well. Oh, the number. Yeah. Um, it's funny that that kind of became this like. Because the game has such a powerful community that's like really, really 
I mean, surprisingly accurate. I want to, if we can... But it's worth it. I'm surprised as well. Yeah. I mean... Like, anyway, sorry, finish your thought first. Finish your thought first. If you... Yeah, the No Mercy um, playthrough reveals a lot of really startling facts for the... Like, for example, the fact that your character is... The person you're controlling is is actually like a character that already was in the world. Yes, was the mythic first child that fell into yeah, the world. The first a, human that like, fell into the world. Apparently, like, it's in a spot, and they're called Kara, or Chara, but if you, if you like, leave the name, or you, you select the name Chara, it won't let you enter it in. Yeah. Like, it's, like, giving you hints that, like, I mean, throughout the game, but that is a specific reality of the game is like you're not actually controlling a tabula rasa the character you're controlling is someone that's already what's well, a closed time loop in a way yeah because and, you every time yeah. you start the game again you start the time loop again you are the legend yeah essentially the no mercy playthrough reveals that um this is groundhog's day you know it reveals yeah. that your actions are actually have all been done before in various ways and that what you're doing is in itself a closed loop there's no like exit point yeah, per se, you ingrained yourself into the weird nightmares of each of these monsters. Yeah, you are um, Kara. You are, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it kind of like. And Michael Lewis's argument is that it actually kind of undercuts the other parts of the story a little bit, in that it's like you know, is the game arguing that like you know morality is good, or or you should follow a moral code, you should um, try and help these monsters, or is it arguing a more nihilistic perspective where it's saying that. Um, you know, this is this like kind of uh, sinkhole of a of a world where whatever you throw into it is forever cycling in a loop sure. that you can't really um, escape from. So yeah. it's like kind of like. But what's interesting is just that 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 the mercy playthrough is so difficult to to execute. It and is. It's like, the last boss is like almost. I've seen, I I wasn't able to do it myself. I just watched the let's play of it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ! Mm-hmm. This is intense. Yeah. And, and it's, it's punishing the player. Yeah. It's punishing the player. It super is, yeah. yeah. You need to fight everyone, and then exactly. people get harder. And the know? final boss is like takes on like a crazy. You can't even beat it, really, right? The final boss just comes and kills you, basically. Crazy guy. Oh sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, so it's really interesting. It is interesting, and I, I feel like when I was playing it, I was playing it on the heels of all of its sort of commercial and critical, well, commercial success and critical, you know, middle success. Like some people have reviewed it quite poorly. Some people it really well and I get to this point where I'm wondering like and I was like I was being it was when I was like deep in the game and I was just not having a great time so I was like kind of like being sardonic and mean I was like why do people even like this game <laughs> nah, nah, nah. but then I remembered what it was like to be I think I was maybe 11 or 12 years old and I had a Super Nintendo and I popped in I bought and I popped in a copy of Earthbound and my little mind was blown because much like the first time you ever read a book where a character curses or a character does something truly bad mm-hmm. or witnesses an act of sex or d- performs an act of sex, the first time your your little mind can perceive that like the world is bigger than the narcissism of your own youth, that like morality is flexible, that's a big moment in anyone's life. And the pieces of media that help motivate that coming of age in yourself, I think, will stick with you forever. Mm-hmm. So for you and I, you know, we were forced to read Catcher in the Rye as a mm-hmm. part of our curriculum. Mm-hmm. That's a banned book in many states, but in our, like, you know, neoliberal <laughs> enclave of whatever feels, like, we, we, we read it. And it was, at the time, incredible. Oh, yeah. I go back and I read it now, and I'm like, what a phony book. Mm-hmm. Just like Holden Caulfield <laughs> would call those other prep yeah. school kids phonies, I was like, 
this book sucks to read, uh-huh. and what a fucking foul-mooded child this little bitch baby is. <laughs> oh my god, I was that bitch baby. Yeah. Like, yeah. I am such a punk. I'm so ashamed. I was such that. a punk. <laughs> and oh my god, I used to listen to the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh-huh. Like, all of these things, right, are so tied to where you are, I think, as a human in the world, and in your development, and your media awareness and i think that there's a whole generation of you know people out there of every age that are coming to our medium this this medium that we love and we're very mature in and having these kinds of experiences and i'm not trying to infantilize or minimize the success and the complexity and the 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 real achievement that that fox has 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 put out there it's it's by all, all by all measures for a single person to create a game of that scope it is truly impressive, and I must give credit where credit is due. And I think it really relies upon you being in the right place to experience that game. And I think because so much of the value of the game is the voice of the humor mm-hmm. and the voice of the, the characters, humor is great. you have to, yeah, you have to like the humor to love the game. And I like yeah. the humor. I mean, Papyrus, yeah, Papyrus is great. Fantastic, it's great. It's great. <laughs> yeah. um, it just couldn't carry me th- me through multiple eight-hour playthroughs. Absolutely not. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't expect. I wouldn't expect so, you to do. I wouldn't do it myself. Again, yeah. disclosure for you, disclosure for our audience. I've played the game once. Yeah, and I've let's play, watch the game a bunch. Did of you times. get the? You got the? I think I got the. Neutral, I got the neutral ending. Oh really? Did, did you kill yeah, somebody? I guess I did. I don't remember killing anybody, oh. but I also did not get the happy ending, which I watched. I had to watch. Yeah, are they going to go to the surface? Yeah, and, and I was like, really glad I didn't get it because then it was a long-ass ending. Oh my god. This, it could be a fight other that. characters. It's too. so funny yeah. that people like used to complain about Metal Gear Solid cutscenes and I'm like, <laughs> this is a 40-minute 2D cutscene. Like, <laughs> give me a break. Like, it was good. It was fine. Sure. Um, but I also think about the fact that like Toby Fox created the battle system before he even wrote a line of the story. Mm-hmm. So I personally like, and this is I discovered that after the fact of playing the game. But I do feel like so much of this is this really interesting mechanical exploration of what happens when a computerized system can remember everything, mm-hmm. and there's this battle system that like it's fun, it's cool, and it grows. It's I mean, it has a lot of clever elements to it. Like uh, my favorite fight, I think, is fighting the the seahorse that has muscles the muscle seahorse oh yeah muscly seahorse is cool and it's like you 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 did and you know to do the pacifist uh win you basically have to flex battle with him yeah and so you flex he flexes harder and like you're and during the the shooting up shoot him up or bullet hell mini mini game you're avoiding his like muscly arms yeah it's super cool and then he flexes himself off the screen and it's like super funny yeah Yeah. it is and like you know the, the the progressive sort of changing of that mechanic where you can shield yourself in certain other, like it's cool like it's definitely a fully realized battle system sure it's like, no, you gotta give credit where credit's due stuff. I mean for me I think partially it's I don't think I can handle RP- JRPGs anymore like really I, I mean I cause I was looking at like Xeno Saga oh Xenoblade Chronicles Xenoblade Chronicles, Chronicles yeah. with interest I mean I played the first uh, Xenoblade for Playstation 1 I think it's called Xenoblade been a while it has been a while uh and i love that game a lot and but i'm just like Can i, I just this? feel like i'm in this point in my life and, I, and it's like kind of my trepidation with persona as well because i am like i have the vita now and i'm like oh i must recommend i should play persona for, for golden but every, i don't know like everyone said, told me to play um that ds game the world ends with you yeah and i was like that I don't think I like this game <laughs> because that fucking battle system was a mess. Yeah. People were like, it's the best, but yeah. it's like people yeah. talking about the new Star Fox game. It's uh-huh. the no any battle system that requires 
two screens to be tracked in real time mm-hmm. is not meant to be played by one person. Mm. And it's just not, it's not fair. It's not fair because both of those screens carry more than four points of information at the same time. Mm. And the human brain can actually only track seven at, at a specific time. Mm-hmm. So it's like seven or eight is the maximum. And the, it's just stretching. It's, it's too much. I love the world ends with you writing. I love the concept. I love the button system. Yeah. But at a certain point, I was like, you know what? This is just too much. This is work. Yeah. This is work. And yeah, I can't do it anymore. It, yeah. I think that's my case with many JRPGs. It started to feel very tedious. Yeah. And a little bit like I'm putting in more than I'm getting out from it. That's um, how I felt too, man. Playing Undertale, I I yeah. enjoyed it, sort of. I didn't really, but I like I respected it. it. I respected it and I appreciated yeah. it. And I will never play it again. <laughs> Which is fine. I mean, I. I won't play Uncharted 4 again. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I deleted it. it took oh, coming space. next episode. Coming I know. Next sneak, episode. sneak preview. Sneak preview, guys. Uh, actually, I think that's actually our time. Yeah. Um, next episode, I think. We're yeah, gonna be I doing... think we should do it. Uncharted yeah, let's 4. do it. All right, so next episode. We've never done this before, but next episode, we are doing Uncharted 4. So watch that the next episode is not Uncharted 4. <laughs> yeah. Um, as well, always, we got to give shout-outs. We have to actively cut this part out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we give shout-outs yeah. to uh, Brian. Yeah, Old School Brian on Twitter. He's a cool dude who helped make our music for our intro, and we are eternally grateful. Eternally. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. Sorry for the delay, and coming soon, Uncharted 4. That's right.